Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 7, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick, again, the author of The God Who Fights For You, which was released last year, and before that, Spiritual Grid, and before that, the book The Jesus-Centered Life. Um, That's uh, actually the original title of this podcast, The Jesus-Centered Life. If you can call original one that I thought would be great and that um, the Becky Nader back in the day shot down... And she suggested the current title, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, which is, is in fact, the longest um, uh, URL, URL in history. PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com is our website. So I'm also the uh, general editor of the Jesus Center Bible, which I know many of you listening have your own precious treasured copy of that. If you don't have one, we'll have a link to the Jesus Center Bible on this episode page. This is, again, Season 5, Episode 7. Coming in the fall is a brand-new daily devotional called uh, the Jesus Centered Daily. Uh, I've, I've spent about a year and a half now working on this daily devotional, and it is has been an uh, epic journey uh, creating this. Uh, it's like uh, I've told many people, it's like uh, writing a book that has 365 chapters. Never done that one before, but we'll talk to you more about that as it as it gets closer to the time. But that'll be coming out in early October of this year, so you can look for that. So we're in the third episode of a new series that I'm calling Foundations. We're exploring uh, just foundational truths that are connected to Jesus and to his mission in our lives. So we're just looking at the building blocks of what is important to Jesus, essentially. And today, uh, we're it's kind of a funny title today. It's called Building a Song from a Mess. <laughs> so um, we're, we're going to explore something that I, I don't think we often talk about. Uh, so, But let's, let's backtrack a little bit to where we've been before. Um, we have uh, focused on what happened because of Adam and Eve's betrayal back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, their disobedience created destruction. It destroyed their relationship with God. It destroyed their own identity. Um, they, be, they, they experienced shame for the first time. Um, it, it's almost like this betrayal, this, this disobedience, this caving into the conniving of the serpent uh, put a wrecking ball to them, and, and now they're, they're, they're just pieces of themselves, just scattered in a pile. So the original lie... Just to remind ourselves again, the original lie that that caused all this was the serpent telling them that that the reason why God did not want Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that he knew that because he's such a small, jealous, petty God, that if they ate of that apple or that fruit, uh, they would become like him. So this is the seed of the deception he planted in in Adam and Eve that God is holding out on you, and he doesn't want you to have as much power and authority as he has. That's why he doesn't want you to eat of the tree. You could become like God. So this is the, this is the root of the tree of all sin right here. <clears throat> this, this particular deception is the, the source for every other deception that we, are, uh, uh, that we, that we cave into, so this idea that we can be like gods is, is planted deep in us. So um, and, and, uh, another way of thinking about this is that uh, this lie created in us this idea that, that uh, well, we're like toddlers, but we decided we're big enough to use a chainsaw or drive a car. So we're t- like a toddler's crawled in, in behind the wheel and is... Uh, somehow pushing on that accelerator and trying to drive that car or use a chainsaw. Um, once that happened, once we thought we were uh, we had the capability of doing that, we wrought destruction in the world. So how can that broken, messy humanity recover from all this destruction that sin caused so many so many eons ago, um, but is still 
present and li- uh, being lived out in our life today? How can how can this broken humanity recover itself? Well, the message of the gospel is we can't recover ourselves, that we need uh, a Savior, a Messiah, someone who can recover us for ourselves. So we know that the mission of Jesus is to destroy the works of the devil. That's what we focused on last week. But but it the mission of Jesus is also to bring freedom to captives. So in the one hand, he's destroying the work that Satan started back there in that garden. He's destroying the underpinnings of that deception. And on the other hand, he's freeing us from that captivity so that we can live free. So he's destroying something and building something up um, on the other side. They're both happening at the same time. So the question is, what and how and why is he, what is he building in us? What, how does he rescue this messy pile and, and turn it into something? It's, it's like we're just a bunch of messy parts thrown on a table, and it all looks jumbled and not well put together and non-functional, certainly, certainly not beautiful. Ever, ever feel like a mess like that? Well, uh, a mess to a creative artist is an exciting proposition, <laughs> and that's what we look like to Jesus. We, we sometimes feel like we're a mess, and he looks at us and sees the possibility. But I thought it'd be interesting to, to um, listen to a little scene from the film Apollo 13. Um, many of you have seen this film, I think. It's, it was quite popular. It's, uh, it has Tom Hanks and Kevin Bacon and Bill Paxton in it. Bill Paxton? I think that's the third guy. It's, the three, it's a true life story of what happened with Apollo 13. They were on a mission to the moon. Uh, they had a, a catastrophic uh, mechanical failure in their capsule, and then they had to just simply figure out how to to turn that thing around and make it home safely, which is hard to do when you're already uh, vaulting through space toward the moon, and you can't simply stop that thing and turn the thing around and come back home. They didn't have enough fuel. Remember, you know, on all of these uh, uh, space missions, they they allow enough fuel that they think will cover the mission, but not much more than that because that's at, that add, adds extra weight. So these guys were caught in space, and it looked very dicey as to whether they they could actually make it back home after this catastrophic failure. And the story of Apollo 13... Um, just gets worse and worse as you watch it. One thing after another keeps happening, and one of the things that that uh, threatened their survival was that there there was a buildup of CO two in their capsule. Uh, they had enough oxygen, but when we breathe in oxygen, we exhale CO two, and that those CO two levels can get to toxic levels. Uh, the filters in their capsule uh, were were getting filled up, and pretty soon they were going to be full. And they wouldn't be able to scrub the air anymore. The problem was that the uh, they could borrow some air filters from uh, uh, the landing, the lunar landing module, but the f- the two filters were quite different in shape, and they didn't fit in in the slots they were supposed to fit. So they couldn't just interchange them. So this was a big problem. So we're gonna we're gonna uh, listen to about two minutes of the film when. Uh, they have suddenly discovered that the CO2 levels are rising uh, to, to getting close to a toxic level. And uh, so you're going to hear um, a number of mission control experts talking over uh, what they have to do to fix this problem. And then they hand the problem over to a bunch of engineers who have to figure out how to do this on the fly. So I'll narrate a little bit when necessary, uh, but we're going we're gonna to listen. I just want you to get this picture in your head and your imagination. Just picture what you think NASA's control room would look like, and now uh, let's listen to what happens here, and I'll, I'll try to help out by narrating when I need to. We have a situation brewing with the carbon dioxide. We had a CO2 filter problem on the lunar module. Five filters on the limb, which are meant for two guys for a day and a half. So I told the doctor. You're already up to eight on the gauges. Anything over 15, and you get impaired judgment, blackouts, the beginnings of brain asphyxia. What about the scrubbers on the command module? They take square cartridges. And the ones on the limb are round. <laughs> tell me this isn't a government operation. It just isn't a contingency we've remotely looked at. Those CO2 levels are going to be getting toxic. Well, I suggest you gentlemen invent a way to put a square peg in a round hole. Rapidly. 
Now they're dumping out a bunch of parts that are actually on the module on a table. So he's holding up a square box and a cylinder, and they're digging into this pile. Now they're walking down a hallway with this contraption they've created. It looks ridiculous. They're in a hurry. They're urgent. They're running down towards Command Central. What's this? That's what they got to make. Well, I hope you got the procedures for me. Right here. That's it? Shift to the shift to the astronauts. Jack's got one right here. Okay, we have a uh, an unusual procedure for you here. We need to rip the cover off. Once you rip the cover off the flight plan. With pleasure. All right, now the other materials you're going to need here are uh, a lithium hydroxide canister. So two lithium hydroxide canisters. I'm sorry. A uh, roll of gray tape, duct tape, a duct tape, an LCG bag, two LCG bags, uh, red suit hoses, and got the white plant covered. All right, we're going to stop it there. So what happens is the astronauts have to build this uh, new contraption that will allow them to adapt one air filter into the slot for the one that they need it for. And the, these uh, these engineers, this is true. This this actually happened. These engineers just gathered up a pile of stuff that uh, from the from the capsule simulator and dumped it out on a table so that they knew what they had to work with. And and you see them sorting through this pile of stuff and then creating this sort of jury rigged uh, uh, filter system. So th this scene struck me um, as essentially the challenge or problem facing Jesus. <laughs> Here he has this mess of stuff on a table, uh, and, it's, and it's a big pile of mess because of our betrayal, the, the destruction wrought by this. So what will he do now? The question is, um, in this scene, I think we can learn something about the heart of God because we are created in his image. And what these um, engineers do to try to save the lives of these three astronauts I think reflects the heart of God as he approaches us. What is he going to do with the mess that is us? So in this scene, I think what we see uh, in these guys is a, a sense of uh, boundaryless creativity. They look at all this and they say, uh, here's what we've got, let's figure out how to make it work. And they're not that concerned about um, how pristine the thing looks. What they're concerned about is, will it work? They are interested in uh, the bigger picture here. Um, they're interested in life, not so much style points. So they, they work very creatively, and, and they're interested really in what works. They're, they're persistent. Uh, you can sense in their urgency that um, even though they, they know the clock is ticking, that they are going to persist until they find a problem. The, the, the idea that they won't find a solution to this doesn't occur to them. They're going to figure it out. So they persevere, they're determined, um, and they have kind of a, I'd say, kind of a fierce commitment to those astronauts. They know their lives are resting on their ability to come up with a plan. So they, 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 they have this fierce commitment to, let's, let's call them the beloved, since we're using this as a metaphor. That that they uh, they want to save their lives, so they're figuring out how to do that, and that they're not boundaring themselves by what seems possible. They're essentially saying anything's possible, so let's figure this out. In the end, their commitment is to life above all. So uh, I showed this scene to a bunch of kids in my Tuesday night group. Um, they're a bunch of uh, mostly senior hires in this group. I showed this scene to them, and then. I gave, uh, I broke them into teams, and I gave each team kind of a box of stuff, just a messy box of stuff, random stuff I found in my basement. I just loaded it into each box for each team, and I gave them each this bo box of disparate, broken things, 
And I asked that I gave them 15 minutes to envision what they could build out of the mess that was in their box. And they had to build build something that was both functional and beautiful. Functional and beautiful. And then I just set them loose. You you use your creativity, make whatever you want out of this box. Um, and uh, after 15 minutes, I had each team show what they had made out of the mess that was in their box. And one of those teams, uh, I, uh, I think it was the first team I asked to describe their item, they made this, uh, they used actually the box that I put their stuff in as part of their solution. And they, and they blew up some balloons and had a kind of a propeller on top. And then they put Dr. Doofenshmirtz from uh, Phineas and Ferb, the cartoon show Phineas and Ferb, a little figurine of Dr. Doofenshmirtz piloting this thing. It looked like a crazy drone. And that's actually what they were trying to create. They, they said their invention, using the mess that was in their box, was what was going to replace Amazon, that this thing would deliver in its box cargo hold um, anything you wanted it to, to deliver to any any person. So that that's what they made out of the mess of their stuff in, in 15 minutes. And after everyone was finished uh, showing what they had made out of their box, I asked them some questions about how challenging it was to do this from scratch, to take a look at all these pieces and parts and figure out what to make. But then the last question I asked was uh, um, in, in the the the... Well, what am I trying to say? They they are they were supposed to make this not only functional but beautiful. So I asked them, "What makes your invention beautiful to you?" And one of the one of the girls in the group said something really profound. She said, "What makes it beautiful is that we made it. We're the we're the owners of this thing. We're invested in it. That's what makes it beautiful." And that is such a profound um, insight into the heart of God. When he looks at us, he sees beauty because he created it. He has ownership in us. He's invested in us. He's gone all in with us. That's where the beauty comes from. That That's the beauty he sees in us, that he is, he is rebuilding and restoring us in a way that makes us a work of art. Um, or um, you could say, He's taking the basic elements of music and putting them all together into a song. It's almost as if you if you dumped a bunch of notes into a box and they're just lying there. Um, you don't have anything until you start to put those notes together in a certain order, and then what comes out of it, what could come out of it, is a beautiful song. But it takes an artist who can look at all that pile of notes and put them all together in a certain way. Um, to make a truly beautiful song. So that's the, that's the challenge he's confronted with, and that's his mission, is to make something beautiful out of that disparate pile of notes. So one of the things I mentioned to the, the young people that night was one hurdle they didn't have to overcome when they were building their strange contraptions is they did not have to ask permission of their building materials in their box before they started using those things and putting them together. That is a challenge that Jesus does have. Um, he can't simply uh, start rebuilding our pile of mess um, without inviting us to participate with it. So everything in the kingdom of God, I've said many times on the podcast, everything in the kingdom of God operates through permission. That's why Jesus invites us. So he wants to restore and rebuild us. He wants to take the mess of our life and make a beautiful song out of it. He wants to take those disparate notes and reorder them into something soaring beautiful, but he, but he has to have our, per, our permission, our, our, our participation in this process. He will not force himself on us, because once he forces himself on us, we become like those inanimate objects in the box. We, we become things that don't have a heart and soul, and he will not violate our heart and soul. So he, he sees the pile of mess, he sees what he can do with it, but he needs for us to agree with him, to invite him, to allow him to, to remake us into something beautiful. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to, to look through uh, a few, uh, just skip through the Gospel of Luke into uh, you know three or four or five different places. We'll see what kind of time we have for this. 
but to skip through the Gospel of Luke, looking at places where Jesus is doing just this. He's rebuilding, he's making beauty out of ugly, or he's uh, he's taking a pile of mess and making something very functional out of it. It works. Um, even if it doesn't look so good, it works. And what do the people in these scenes, uh, what, what is their role? What do they have to do to invite and participate in this process? So we're going to look at two things when we look at these um, three or four or five separate encounters. We're going to look at what Jesus is doing to make beauty out of ugly in this, in this scene, and then what are the people involved? What's, what's their role? What do they have to do? So I thought we could start in, in Luke chapter 10, um, Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start reading in the very first verse of Luke, Luke 10, and we're going to skip something midway, but we're basically going to go to verse 1 to verse 20, and we're going to cut out a little portion in the middle that's uh, not necessary for what we're going to talk about today. So I'll just start reading, and then I might summarize a little bit here. I'm probably not going to read the whole thing, but... It, but um, It starts out, the Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. So what we've got are 72 disciples that he's chosen, and he's he's paired them up, and he's sending them out to places he's going to later visit. Um, And then here is his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now go, and remember that I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, then the blessing will stand. If they're not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. And don't hesitate to accept um, hospitality, because... Those who work deserve their pay. And he's basically saying then, um, once you're in that town, I want you to heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God has come. But if these towns don't welcome them, they're just supposed to wipe the the dust of that town off their feet and move on um, and not worry about it. And then uh, towards the end here, here's what he says. Anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. And anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. And anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. So the 72 disciples go out, and then when they return, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. So they had this incredible experience uh, as extensions of Jesus um, as they go out. So uh, what we're looking for here is, what is Jesus doing to make beauty out of the mess that is that these disciples have become. Uh, what what is he doing as he sends them out, and what is their role? What's their their uh, uh, what's their responsibility to participate? So here's what I see: uh, um, Jesus is he could go to each of these towns. Why does he need an advanced party? He could do it himself. It's it's not uh, necessary for him to send them out, but he's giving these friends an agency. In, in his mission, he's sharing with them his, his mission and counting on them, giving them real responsibility in his mission. And he's sending them out to do things that are, um, up, to, up until this point, only he had been doing, healing the sick, casting out demons, um, uh, telling people about the kingdom of God. Up until this point, he had been the only one doing this. And these are daunting things. If you were there watching Jesus do these things, I'm sure you would have thought, as I would have, uh, it's a good thing Jesus is doing that, because I could never do that. And now he's shifting that load of responsibility onto them. He's inviting them into the adventure with him. And so he is elevating them out of this uh, base purpose in life and giving them the highest mission they could possibly have in life, which is to participate with him in setting captives free, um, casting out demons and healing the sick. And then he does an interesting thing. He says, I don't want you to take any money and you know, extra clothing and all this. And we've had a podcast before where we focused on that very issue of, wow, why does Jesus do that? Why does he make it even harder at the start here? But you can see what he's doing is, uh, think, think back to what, what was lost when Adam and Eve uh, betrayed God. 
the deception they fell for was you can be like gods, which is another way of saying you can be self-sufficient. Um, you can be sufficient unto yourself. And uh, this deception now, as I said before, flows through us even up until this day. So self-sufficiency is something he is going to have to invite them out of so they can reattach to him, so that so that the life that they lost, they could now gain back through their attachment to him. So here he is taking away all of the ways that they can be self-sufficient on this trip, and he's asking them to learn how to attach to him, to look to him to sustain everything that he needs, every everything that they need as they go out. So he's shifting their focus from self-sufficiency to Jesus' dependency when he does this. And he goes to great lengths to say, here's, here's what I want you to do, and here's what I don't want you to do. Um, he, he's, he's asking them over and over again to learn how to trust their attachment to him. And when they come back, they see they, they have these joyful reports of the fruits of what this has led to. Now, what do they have to do to participate in this? Well, they have to go. <laughs> they, they, when Jesus sends them, they have to go. Think about turning around after Jesus has given you these instructions, heading out the door, and now you're on your way. It means they have to act on what he's asked them to do. They've had to pay attention to what he's told them to do, and then follow through. Go do it. Um, and when they do it, what they're really doing is they're is they're acting on that trust. They're actually attaching to him when they do what he's asked him to ask them to do. That's where the attachment comes in. And so they they go out and they risk to do what he's asked them to do, even though it seems impossible for them. They step over that chasm and they start doing it. And uh, that's really our role. That's what he's inviting us into. He's not going to force us over that chasm. We have to step over it. Let's look at another one in Luke chapter 11. This one starts in verse, let's see, 37. This is where Jesus is criticizing the religious leaders. So I'll start out, and then I'll kind of summarize all the horrible things that Jesus says to the religious leaders. But in verse 37, chapter 11 of Luke, as Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that Jesus had sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. So here he is, he's invited home for a meal at one of the Pharisees' houses. He enters and he doesn't do what everyone knows to do, um, and that is ceremonially wash your hands before you eat. He doesn't do it, and that attracts the attention of his host. And then Jesus says to him, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and you'll be clean all over. And then he goes on to say, you, know, you guys follow all the laws, of, and you tithe what you're supposed to, but you simply ignore justice right in front of you. I, I, I'm tired of your tithes. Just do the right thing. And he, and he hammers away at them that they're so arrogant that they like to display themselves in the synagogue so that um, they can get all the praise and, um, and adulation that their inflated egos are looking for. And he basically says, you know, <laughs> you guys are ridiculous. He calls them hidden graves um, in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they're stepping on. So he's saying people don't realize how corrupt you are inside. So this is some heavy stuff, and his host says, "Teacher, uh, you've insulted us too in what you just said, you know." <laughs> and and Jesus says, "Yeah, I know, um, but let me let me go on." And he and he goes on to criticize them for um, all of the ways that they have been hypocritical or deceptive or arrogant. Um, and uh, in the end, let's see how far do I want to go here. It says up to fifty four. So. Um, in the end, let me just read you the last few verses. He says, "'What sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering.'" And as Jesus was leaving, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees became hostile and tried to provoke him with many questions. 
they wanted to trap him into saying something they could use against him. So they're incredibly offended, and they want to trap him somehow if they can. So um, so this is kind of a crazy story in the context of what we're talking about. How is Jesus remaking the mess into something beautiful? What is he doing? Well, um, Jesus is never not loving, so he's in front of these Pharisees saying all these horrible things to them, and we know that when he's doing this, he is loving them, because that's what Jesus does. So in order to remake them, he first must destroy them. They have taken these broken pieces, and in their self-sufficient way, have kind of slapped them together with duct tape themselves. They've put something together themselves, and like in that scene from Apollo 13, um, they have not put together those pieces and parts in a way that will save their life. In fact, um, they've put together something that looks like an air filter that might work, but it's not functional. It won't work. And when you recognize that the thing that you put together, the life that you've built, the identity that you have built for yourself isn't working, well, what must Jesus do first? He must first break down what you've built up so that he can rebuild that into something beautiful that actually does work. And here he's he comes on so strong because he cares for these hypocritical, deceitful, conniving people. He wants them to enter into uh, intimate relationship again. That's his mission, but he can't do that unless he breaks them down first, and so he does. Now, again, what's their responsibility in this equation? What, what do they have to do? Well, um, not what they did at the end, which is trying to figure out a way to trap him, but we know that perhaps the, uh, uh, even Nicodemus was in this gathering of Pharisees and religious leaders. We don't know for sure, but we know some of these religious leaders heard what Jesus was saying and, and felt conviction rather than defensiveness that they responded to him with some openness to what he was doing. There's repentance in them. And and when we're being broken down, um, instead of fighting or getting angry or blaming, what if we simply repented? What if we reopened ourselves to Jesus and invited him to remake us instead? That's really what Jesus is hoping for here. He's taking a risk with these guys hoping some of them will take the risk and have the courage to turn to him with an openness that says, please remake me. And that's essentially what Nicodemus does when he comes to Jesus in the night. He pursues him further. He's fascinated by him. He wants to know what the path to life is, and that's when Jesus says, you have to be born again, Nicodemus. So Nicodemus took him up on this, and this is exactly what Jesus is hoping for. Let's take a look at least one more here, Uh, Luke chapter 12. Starting in verse, let's see, 22. Um, This is where he's uh, teaching about money and possessions. So let's read this little section. Then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, That's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear, for life is more than food and your body more than clothing. Now look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, which he means by that he means they're not working. But he says, but God feeds them, and you're far more valuable to him than any birds. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? And look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world, but your Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he'll give you everything you need. And don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven, and the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it, and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there is the desires of your heart will also be. So let's now dig into this a little bit. 
I think it's interesting. Uh, maybe something that, uh, that that this this stuck out to me. I wonder if it stuck out to you as well. But right toward the end of this, Jesus says, "Don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom." Here he's referencing a common metaphor he uses for us and for himself. He uses the metaphor of sheep to describe us and good shepherd to describe himself. And here's what's profound about that. Sheep have no natural ability to fend off any predator. Um, They are completely helpless without a shepherd to care, care for and protect them. Sheep are not the sharpest knives in the knife drawer, um, to put it mildly, they have lots of issues that um, make them vulnerable. And if they don't have a protector, a ferocious shepherd in their corner, they're always at risk. So here Jesus is reminding them again that they are like that. They are sheep, that their only hope for protection is under the covering of a good shepherd. So don't wander away from the good shepherd. He's the one who who is taking care of you. And that uh, it makes sense that he's saying this because it comes at the end of a string of um, uh, kind of poetic uh, metaphors that he's using to describe how the created world is cared for by God just because he loves. They're not having to deserve his care. God cares because he wants to care. And as human beings, we often fall into this pattern of thinking that uh, we have to deserve whatever it is we get. Um, We don't actually like the whole concept of grace. It seems unfair to us. So we work for what we get and feel pride and sometimes arrogance over what we've earned. Um, When somebody says they're a self-made person, we know that's meant to be a positive. But in the eyes of Jesus, a self-made person is a is a person not well put together, <laughs> because the only one who makes us into something beautiful is him. It's impossible for us to make ourselves into something really beautiful. It's Jesus who does that when we offer him the pieces of who we are and ask him to remake us into something beautiful. And here he's reminding these, these crowds again, hey, um, you're working so hard to deserve everything you get, but you're surrounded by undeserved beauty, and this is the heart of your Father. He wants to give and care for you, protect you, ferociously be for you, um, um, if you will invite him. So then the, the question becomes, well, what, what must we do to respond to this, to enter into this invitation? Um, it, it, in this case, it's, it seems pretty clear what he's inviting his, his, uh, his followers into doing. He, he's saying, rely on me instead of um, yourselves. Um, learn to trust me. Um, and the way that you can trust me is to give away your possessions. Give it to the people in need. Do something to s- step into your trust of me, and then you will see what I will do in response to that. Um, He's essentially asking them to do what the lilies of the field already do. <laughs> They're already expectant that God, their creator, will clothe them in beauty. They have no—that that is their default setting. Um, in our case, we have volition. We can choose whether that's going to happen or not, and that's what he's inviting us to do, to choose whether we will make him our sustenance instead of our own self-sufficiency. So— I'm not going to do the other two examples, but if you'd like to explore this same question, what is Jesus doing to remake something ugly and a, a pile of mess into something beautiful, and what is our role in it, here's a couple more that you can do on your own. Go to Luke chapter 14 and verses 25 through 35. This is where Jesus outlines the cost of being a disciple. Luke 14, 25 through 35. You can uh, do this yourself and ask the same questions and see what you find. Or the last one is Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30, and this is where Jesus invites the rich young ruler into relationship. Um, Read that story again, asking yourself, what is Jesus doing in this encounter to take the mess of this person and try to make it into something beautiful, and what is the responsibility of the person to respond to that? I thought it'd be interesting, uh, I, I called this episode Building a Song from a Mess, 
And I talked about just dumping a bunch of notes in a box, and it takes an artist to take all that and make it into a song. I thought it'd be interesting to close with a, a short video that shows how the the um, uh, popular singer-songwriter Charlie Puth creates a song from scratch. So this is a short uh, overview where Charlie is, is sitting inside his home studio in front of his computer. This is how people who write songs um, today, this is how they write songs. They do it sitting in front of their computer. And Charlie's got a keyboard attached to his computer, and he's going to walk through how he created from the beginning um, his incredibly popular song called Attention from his last album. So I thought it'd be fascinating to listen to Charlie talk about how he looked at that box of disparate notes and what he saw and what he did to try to collect all that into a song. So let's listen to this. I will narrate it if I need to, but here we go. Charlie Puth talking about how he created his incredibly popular song, Attention. I record pretty much everything on the road because it's weird. It's like I'm comfortable yet uncomfortable, and that's like a perfect combination to um, to make a song. calling the album voice notes because I use this this is like my number one songwriting tool I record instruments I record shakers and pianos on here and I put them directly into the session attention was like the first song for the album and it started out as this like really sad depressing piano ballad as most of my songs start out as and then they become groovy fun pop songs this was the original voice memo for it it's playing this on his iPhone <laughs> so depressing. And then it became a little bit more exciting. I wonder if this is the track here. That's the verse. And that just popped into my head, and it's so much easier for me to do that than write E flat, E okay, treble clef, E flat, E flat. I don't even honestly know how to do it. I just have it in my head, and then I record it, and then it just goes into a Pro Tools session. And it started out as like this. Like something sneaky. And then I was like, it sounds really stupid. It sounds like a Disney movie. So I replaced it with this guitar here. Which is me playing the notes individually on the iPhone and then layering them with this. All the waveforms are cut up individually, and I, I play them twice, the, the E-flat, and, uh, and the B-flat, and then I pan them, and then they become this nice little stereo image, and it kind of sounds like I know how to play guitar. I added this Rhodes, and this was originally the verse, and I was like, it's too vibey to be the, the verse. The verse should just be like that melody that I had on my phone. So I had the whole thing in my head, I just had to like, okay, dissect everything, that all the layers in my brain. This album, I'm completely sonically modeling after um, Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam, like 1988 to 1990s R&B. It was all really warm, yet bright, so I always put, you know, my fake tape machine. If you can hear that little vinyl crackle in the background, you can hear the difference without it. the classic sweeps to create the energy and everyone's like oh my god here comes my least favorite word in music but like here comes the drop oh my god here comes the drop eh. and then I don't give them the drop I give them the anti-drop so everyone's always asking about the bass who played the bass what happened with the bass um, he's playing that on the keyboard now obsessed with disco and how bad it sounded but like the cool elements of it like you know like that was really really appealing to me so I definitely wanted to throw that in there 
So that sounds like the realest bass ever. So I printed that and added all the same thing with like uh, the lo-fi and added all like the, the weird hum to it. So my whole thing is like you need to always make, you need to make each chorus sound a bit different. It doesn't really matter how much you put in, as long as it's just a little bit different. And what made it different in this chorus was the fact that there was just a cowbell. And I pitched it up. So you have the very groundbreaking lyric, What are you doing to me? What are you doing? Uh, <laughs> it originally was supposed to be like one, What are you doing to me? What are you doing now? Well, that's boring. Let's stack it a lot. What are you doing to me? What are you doing? Uh? Another one. What are you doing to me? What are you doing? Uh? And it doesn't sound like anything's changing, but it actually is becoming thicker. And in here is a buried acoustic guitar, and I, I, I'm always so weird about putting acoustic guitars in my songs because if you put an acoustic guitar, it, just, it becomes like that record, like that very, you know, that record, but you can use them um, rhythmically, which is cool, so I just bury it in the background. I think it like sounds like if you were in like a hotel room in Miami in 1988 looking out at the ocean and there were white linen uh, curtains blowing in the wind. Yeah, you just see him in front My of his first keyboard. album, even though it wasn't 100% me, it was me trying to figure out who I was musically. And now I've kind of arrived at that point. That's what voice notes is. Attention, I was nervous, so nervous to put this out because it sounds nothing like what's on the radio right now and it sounds nothing like me so i was worried that people were gonna get like really confused as to who i was i guess you know drawing real inspiration real life things in my life and putting them into a song people gravitate towards that um so it worked So there you, you, there you have Charlie Puth, how he created uh, that song, Attention. Get a little taste of the finished version at the end. But I, I want you to think about uh, – this is going to sound like such a stretch, so I'm sorry. But uh, what Jesus is doing in your life is not that far from what Charlie Puth is doing in front of his computer with all of the palette of notes in front of him. He's, he's paying attention to these ridiculous nuances. He has a sensibility about what beauty is, and he's making choices out of the, that sensibility. And he's layering uh, upon layer of beauty as he builds this song from scratch. He sees something and he thinks, no, not quite that yet. And he flips the chorus and the, and the, uh, because it's, it, it, it's not the right vibe for his chorus, so he he flips the song around to to make it different, and then that works, and he knows it works because he has the, a sense of what a musician wants to hear when they're when they're crafting a song. And if you, you think about, uh, we know from the Old Testament that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and this is what that process looks like to make us fearfully and wonderfully. Uh, we often think of that as we're fearfully and wonderfully made from the womb. Yes, that's true, but he is remaking us outside of that womb. He is fearfully and wonderfully making us each today. He's taking the parts that we give him and invite him into, and he's recrafting them into a song like that. And here's the last thing I'll say. He has a vision for what that song can become. I loved it when Charlie Puth said, this song um, puts you in a place where you're in this room with these white linen um, curtains blowing in the breeze in Miami, and you feel the, the sea breeze coming in through the windows, and you can smell the salt in the air. He's trying to express a vision of beauty that he was trying to replicate through the music of this song to kind of put you in that place. And, and Jesus has a vision. When we say that Jesus has a plan for our life, he doesn't really have a plan for our life in the way we typically think of that, where he's got everything plotted out in a linear way. The plan he has for your life 
is that maybe maybe you are his uh, um, room in Miami with the white linen curtains blowing in the breeze and the salt air coming in through the window. That's the plan he has for, for my life and your life, whatever it is. Each one of us is a different song. Each one of us is a different um, uh, expertly crafted song in his hands, and he has a different vision for each one of us. Um, and it's that vision that drives him forward. That's what he's looking for. So when we say we have a, he has a plan for our life, he has a vision for who we can become, and he wants the song to move in that direction. And there's lots of twists and turns along the way, lots of nuances that can be added, but in the end, he, he wants to create a song that replicates that vision. And, and that's what he's trying to say to us, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and we are unique, each of us. And he's crafting, songwriting a song out of each of us, that out of this mess of notes becomes a, a beautiful song. And I, I love that at the end of that uh, segment with Charlie Puth, when you hear it all put together, where all of the elements are working, and what you hear is this beauty that was never there before, that when you write a song and perform a song, you're adding to the world a beauty that was never there before and could never be replicated again. No two songs are exactly the same. And this is, this is also his vision for us, that we would be a song that, that isn't replicated, that's unique. So there you have it, gang. Um, I thought I'd close just by praying for you. So let's, let's do that now. Jesus, I, uh, for those who are uh, listening to, to the, the sound of my voice right now, I pray that because we're such sheep and we need you so much, and where would we be without you? We need help with everything. And even to open ourselves, to present ourselves to you so that you can take our mess of notes and our uh, disparate stuff in a box and take it all and make something beautiful out of it. So we open our hands to you and offer ourselves to you, that you would take these pieces and make something beautiful out of it. And we need help even with the courage to invite you. So please give us that too. We love you. Amen. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Again, you can go to payingridiculousattentiontojesus.com, go to Season 5, Episode 7, for links to the things that we talked about today on the podcast, and um, you can check it out there. If you uh, if you would like to join our online community called The Pigs, uh, we have an online Facebook, a private Facebook page called The Pigs for people who... Uh, listeners to the podcast and want to be in a relationship with each other and community with each other. And it's a thriving community of people who have questions and um, encouragements and um, brain teasers sometimes. So just go to uh, painridiculousattentiontojesus.com, go to Season 5, Episode 7, you'll see a link there. You can click on the link and ask to be invited into that private Facebook page. So head on over there. By the way, you could subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your your podcast, and that way you can be sure that it's uh, in your feed every week. And um, if if you're a an avid listener to this podcast, please do invite your friends. Send them a link to this podcast and, and invite them to listen. Especially if you know someone who feels like a mess and doesn't see how a song could ever be made out of their life. Maybe this is the podcast to send to them. Thanks, gang. We'll talk again next time. <laughs>